Scripture reading is from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. And you can turn to it if you choose in your pew Bibles. It is on page 1,000. Yeah. No, it's not on page 1,000. 1,026. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, He asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it if a man, for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. You bow your heads with me. Dear God, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would Open up our hearts and our minds to you. Lord, open our minds and bring clarity to concepts that perhaps have been clouded in our minds. Lord, more importantly, open up our hearts to things we already know but have not sunk deep enough into penetrate us at the very core. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how many... North River Valians, does it take to change a light bulb? How many North River Valians, right? We can, we're in the South here. We can pick on the North River Valians, right? Is that okay? Can we do that? How many North River Valians does it take to change a light bulb? What's interesting is as I was thinking about this joke, I realized just these, these jokes, you know, the how many blanks, does it take to fill in a, 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 or to change a light bulb? All those jokes that we all know, they are completely against the gospel. I mean, I thought about that, and I, I used to tell these jokes all the time, you know, how many Coloradans or whatever it would have been, whatever you are growing up, and just realize how anti-gospel those jokes are. How many whatevers does it take to change a light bulb? Because the gospel is that there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer... Jew or Gentile, there is no longer South River Valian or North River Valian. There is no longer Old Tapanian and his Hillsdalian that in Christ we are all one. So maybe I should change. I'm going to change the joke a little bit because I think at least if we, if we make fun of, if I make fun of myself, then it's a little bit different. So, and we'll just make fun of all of us. Are you ready for this? How many Americans does it take to change a light bulb? How many Americans does it take to change a light bulb? One to hold the light bulb, and a hundred to spin the room. Today we're continuing in our series. Don't know why I closed this. I'm going to be reading from it. 
Today we're continuing in our series called Restoration. And the central idea of this whole series is that in light of Easter, this series began in the weeks that followed Easter, in light of Easter we see that God has come and has inaugurated his kingdom. He has come with the goal of bringing renewal and restoration to all things. That the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, what happened in Jesus anticipates what God will ultimately do for all of creation, for those who put their faith in him. And then the cosmos itself, we read in, in Romans 8, long to be redeemed. That what happened to Jesus is what God's plan is for all of creation, to bring renewal and, and restoration. And of course, the resurrection of Jesus answers a question that emerges in this text. And that's the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, that, that may be a question that some of you are asking. That may be a question at various times in your life you have asked. Maybe you, for the first time, are asking that question, who, who is Jesus? And the Gospel of Luke is written to sort of answer that question, who is Jesus? And the first eight chapters, the passage we read from is from chapter 9, the first eight chapters are really about addressing this question of who is Jesus. And then when we come here to chapter 9, it sort of comes to focus. It comes to focus here in chapter 9, and Jesus, well, let's just read this here. Again, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. And, and, and the Christ of God, this is the, the Greek word Christos for the anointed one. The anointed one. He is he is the anointed one. And, and, of course, the crowds have all kinds of different opinions. They've got their own views of what he, they think Jesus might be. But those who knew him best, those who were closest to him, came to this conclusion that he was the Messiah. And the Messiah was this individual that the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, had spoken of, had prophesied, would come with the purpose of bringing renewal and restoration to all things, that when God's kingdom came, when the Messiah came and ushered in this kingdom, the Messiah, again, when the kingdom of God came, he would come through the Messiah. He would be the one who would come to bring renewal and restoration to all things. And what we discover when we come to this text is that this renewal and this restoration begins with you. It begins with a new you. That God's plan is to renew and restore all of creation, but it begins with you. That God wants to renew you, make you new, make a new you out of you. Verse 24 here, for whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) will save it will save it, that will be given this new life. And so at the center of this idea of God bringing renewal and restoration is he wants to make a new you. Elsewhere it says, if anyone is in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So 
This restoration process begins with making a new you. I remember years ago, I, I sang in a, a, well, actually, I played bass in a, a band, a worship band, and there was this, this uh, woman, Megan, who sang with the, the team, and she was good. She was a good singer, uh, good, good voice, good ear for harmonies. She was great, solid, right? Uh, not, not like spectacular, but, but good, and uh, kind of a quiet girl, and then Oh, about five years after I had been with them for a while, this other friend of mine calls up and says, Kevin, did you hear about Megan? I'm like, what? She's like, she just won this gospel music association competition. And she got this recording contract, and she's, she's starting to, like, lead worship in all of these you know, big venues. And he's like, she, she's like, something happened. She's like a new person. Like, her voice, it's like, it's still her, but it's like a new her. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Um, not, I'm not saying that as Christ begins to renew you, that all of a sudden you're going to be able to win the voice. That's not what I'm saying. As an analogy, though, the new you that he's, he wants to make in you is at a much deeper, more fundamental level than being able to sing differently or sing better or whatever. It's, a, it's more f- fundamental than that, but it's still, it's you. It's you but it's a new you. It's you that has come to life. It's you that is truly flourishing. What God wants to do is come and make a new you. Sort of like, uh, sort of like our building, right? It's, it's this renovation that we're doing. It's the same building. We're not making a new building. We're not building a new building. We're just renewing this building. It's this building, but we're making it new. The same thing, it's, it's you, but it's a new you. It's you flourishing as God would desire for you to flourish. It's you the way you're supposed to be, right? We talked about this last week. Talked about how when I got into my friend's car who owns a Porsche and he let me drive it, and I love my Honda Civic, but when I got in that Porsche and I put the pedal down and I said to myself, this is what a car is supposed to be like, And when I went to Colorado and I ate this hamburger, and I've had many hamburgers before, but this one, I said, this is what a hamburger is supposed to be like. This is what we're getting at. We looked at this last week, and we're looking at it again this week, right? What what does this this look like for us to be restored? And, And actually, that's in the Gospel of Luke. If you read on, that's what the next 10 chapters are about. The first eight chapters are about who is Jesus, and then the next 10 chapters are about what does it mean to follow him? What kind of a person do you become in following him? What kind of a person do you become as you allow him to renew and to restore you to the way God intends for you to be? That's what those next 10 chapters are really about. But this passage right here sort of front loads the whole discussion. We kind of just get the whole, it's all, the the, the essence of what it means to be renewed in Christ is found sort of right here in this passage. So again, what does this look like? What does it look like when God begins to renew and to restore you? And I want to highlight three things. Three things that emerge in this picture of this new you. You have a new identity, a new priority, and a new direction. You have a new identity, a new priority, and a new direction. First of all, a new identity. Verse 24, again here it says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me 
will save it. Now, this word here for life, whoever wants to save his life, the word here uh, is, it's not talking about biological life. That would be the word bios. That's actually the Greek would be bios from which we get biology. The word here for life is the word suke. And the word suke has a wide range of meaning. It often will refer to the entire person, but from somewhat of a spiritual angle or perspective. But I think it's important to note that the word suke is the word from which we get our word psychology. Sort of the, the, the self is a way of putting it. It's the you, your inner self. And I think in that sense, we see in this your identity. And what we see here is him saying that there is this new identity. Now, we got to talk about this. What, what is an identity? What is your identity? What do I mean by that? And how does one get their identity? Here's what it is. Your identity is determined by those whose approval you seek. Your identity is determined by those whose approval you seek. You see, everyone is seeking approval. The only thing that is the the antithesis of, of not of seeking approval, is apathy. There are some that are just completely apathetic, but even, even the apathy, I think, generally masks a, a, an approval that they're seeking that they might not even admit or acknowledge. So in the end, everybody, everybody is seeking somebody's approval, and your identity is determined by those whose approval you seek. And in the, in the big picture of all of this, In the big picture, you're either seeking the approval of the world or you're seeking the approval of God. In the end, you are either seeking the approval of the world or you are seeking the approval of God. And of course, what we're going to see is that a person who has this new identity is a person who's finding their identity in God. But you're doing one or the other. You're either finding your identity in the world or you're finding your identity in God. In God and the the world again. If you're finding your identity in the world, then that's the old you. You're you're finding that's your old you seeking to find an identity in the world. And what happens then is that uh, this plays itself out in a lot of different ways. Because again, remember your identity, excuse me your your identity is determined by those whose approval you seek. We don't all seek the same uh, seek approval from the same people, do we? There are different people's groups that you might seek your approval from. So, for example, some of us might really seek approval from our friends or a certain set of our friends. They're the ones who, in the end of the day, we really want them to approve of us. For others, it it, it might be we really want our family to approve us. We want nothing more than for our family to affirm us and validate us and affirm our worth. Uh, Maybe for some of us, it might be your church community. You want your church community to affirm you and validate you and, and give you your worth. For some of us, I think for a lot of us, it's our parents. In fact, oftentimes more than we even realize, oftentimes people don't realize that they're seeking the approval of their parents. Their parents might even have been dead for 30 years, but they're actually still seeking the approval of their parents in the kinds of things that they're trying to accomplish. So we... we we don't all seek the approval of the same people. And, of course, those different people have different things that they value, right? So here's, here's what I'm getting at. There are different types of worldly identity seeking. 
For example, if the people whose approval you're seeking, if they think that making money is important, then that's where you're going to find your identity is in making money. Right? If you have, if your friends or your family or your, or your parents or whoever, if, if they instill in you, you need to make a lot of money, they may not say it that way, but it's sort of insinuated in a lot of things that they do. Uh, if, if they insinuate that you need to make a lot of money and you're trying to seek their approval, then you're, that's what you're going, you're going to spend your life, your identity is in being money-minded, It could be something else. There's money mind. There's success minded, right? Maybe you maybe you live in a family where actually making a lot of money, they actually look down on that. So that's that's actually not cool if you make a lot of money. And so they, they sort of look down on you if you do it. But they do love success. They want you to be successful. So if you can find a way to be successful but not make any money, then your family's really gonna love you, or your particular friends are really gonna love you. Because you're, you're trying to find your identity in what they think matters, what they think is important. For some, it's just success, not so much money necessarily. Right? It, it could be uh, academics. It could be academics. Uh, uh, maybe you're, you know, it's what the value that you get is in accumulating a certain number of degrees from certain institutions. It could be athletics. Maybe the people whose value you're trying, or, or uh, the people whose approval you're trying to get, what they value is athletic performance. And so your identity is wrapped up in how, how well you perform athletically. You see, you see, we find our identity in those whose approval we're trying to seek. Whether it's our parents or our friends. You see, when, when children rebel against their parents, <clears throat> what they're actually doing what they're doing is, is they're, they're actually saying, I'm not going to try to find my identity in what you think I should. I'm going to find my identity in something else. And they say, I, no, I, I'm rebelling against my parents. What they're saying is, I'm going to find my identity in something else. And so, you know, there's this idea of being free. Like, I'm going to be free. I mean, you're not really free. You just switch who you're now trying to, to impress. That's what happens. I mean, sometimes we'll be like, I've broken away from, I'm no longer seeking the approval of my parents, or I'm no longer seeking the approval of my boss, but you usually just switch it. You find somebody else that now you're trying to find your identity in that. And the problem is that no matter what you do, it's never enough. No matter what you do, it's never enough. You see, I think a lot of us, we spend so much of our life trying to find our identity in things that other people think are important. We spend our lives trying to find our identity in things that other people think are important. And then what's interesting is sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we think it's important, but really the only reason we think it's important is because they think it's important. So this is what happens when you're living out of this old you that is finding its identity. You find your identity in the people whose approval that you're seeking, but it's never enough. And so then there's the new you. And what does the new you do? The new you does not seek to find your identity in the world. The new you seeks to find your identity in Christ. And, and here's, 
Here's what's so remarkable about this. Are you ready for this? You see, when you switch and you seek to find your identity in Christ, guess what you have to do to win Christ's approval? Nothing. Do you know what you have to do to win God's approval? Nothing. Story of the prodigal son. Younger son leaves his father. The father represents God. The father, the son leaves the father, dishonors him in a number of different ways, goes out, squanders his wealth, embarrasses him, comes, comes back, and, and the father welcomes him on the basis of grace. He welcomes him back. He's, he's thinking, you know, can I come back and just be your servant? Can I come back and just be your slave? You know, I'm hungry. I need work. I need, can I come back and be your servant and your slave? And he's like, no, you're my son. Your identity isn't in what you do. Your worth and your value isn't in what you do. Your worth and your value is in the simple fact that I love you. Verse 22 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief teachers of law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus died to forgive us of our sin. To say, it's not about you performing. I forgive you of when you fail. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. I want to talk for a minute about the difference between a person who finds their identity in the world and a person who finds their identity in Christ. And even, I think about this for myself because I'm, we're, we're, we're always being pulled. As a believer, I'm being pulled. Sometimes I find my identity in the world, sometimes I find my identity more in, in Christ, and it's, it's very noticeable. I see it in my own life, the difference. When I'm finding my identity in Christ, I am so much more stable. The person who finds their identity in Christ is so much more stable because the person who finds their identity in Christ, they're, they're not bothered by failure. They're not bothered by criticism. You see, those times when if I'm criticized for whatever reason or if for whatever reason I fail at something, and if it really devastates me, that's an indication I'm not finding my worth and my value in Christ. I'm finding my worth, my value, and my identity in the world. You see, the more we just lay ourselves at the feet of of Christ, there is this stability that can withstand whatever comes our way because our identity is not in question here. Our worth and our value is solid. It's not up for grabs. Parents, I, I would encourage you, this is why loving your children unconditionally is so important. You see, when you love your children unconditionally, what you're actually doing is you are living out the gospel. When you're saying to your child, I love you and I value you no matter what direction that you go. I, 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 may, 
I may think that this is important and I, I want you to have this, but I, I, I want this for you, but that's whether you go that direction or not is actually is not going to determine whether or not I value you or love you. Maybe, maybe you're in business, and so you, have, you, you long for your child to go into business and to go in this particular direction, and you're like, you really want them to do that, and maybe they want to become a guitar player. And you're like, no, I, I love you. I think that's a mistake. I think you're not think you're going to be poor and you're going to struggle. But I love you. I, your worth and your value is not in that. Right, 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 even this, even this. Your worth and your value, here it is, ready for this. Parents, as parents, as Christian parents, as, as our kids get older and we say this, we say, I love you whether you decide to be a Christian or not. You see, because you understand, if your, parent, if your children, if anybody ever feels like they have to be a Christian, they can never really become one. If a person feels like they have to, now this is, you know, this is where it, there's, it's more complicated than this, right? When the kids are little, you're going to church, honey. You know, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a transition here that takes place as kids get older, which I don't, I don't claim to have figured out. But I'm just telling you in the big picture, at the end of the day, what we are saying is, is that, look, if, if we try to tell our children they have to be Christians and they feel that pressure, they can never actually become a Christian. They can become a religious person. Oh, they can become religious and they can serve in the church, and they can work hard in the church, and, and, and they can, but they can never really be a Christian because if they're doing that, if they're serving in the church in order to please their parents, then that's not finding their identity in Christ. You see, when you find your identity in Christ, you come to discover that you don't have to do anything, and there is this freedom. What happens when, in light of Easter, as God begins to renew us, we, we find a new identity and then a new priority, right? And here's what's so interesting about this. Now we have a new priority. Here's what it is. With, with this new identity, listen, now I don't have to serve Jesus, but boy, do I want to. I don't have to serve Jesus, but boy, do I want to. You know, I think sometimes for some, for some Christians who maybe grow up in the church, and if they feel this pressure, they have to, they have to, they have to, they have to, they have to. The church becomes a prison. And it's got walls all around it. It's got armed guards up on the towers, and it's a prison, right? It's a prison. And then, and then when they finally come to understand the gospel, all those walls go down. And they're like, I'm out of here. I can get out of here. I'm gone. I'm run. I can, I'm free. And they run and they run and they run and they run. They wait, wait, well, wait a minute. No, I, I think I actually want to be there. I want to go back. I want to be there. I want to sing. I want to be a part of the church community. But now it's no longer a prison. It's a church. It's a family. It's a community. 
It's the difference between finding your identity in religion, which is worldly, comes from the world, and comes from us seeking our approval from something other than God, and finding our identity in Christ. It leads to this new priority. Now I want to. Now I want to serve. Now I want to submit. I don't have to church, but I, I don't have to serve in church, but I want to. I don't have to be morally upright, but I want to. I don't have to surrender to Jesus, but boy, do I want to. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here it's pointing to this new priority of complete surrender to God. And he uses this imagery of taking up your cross. Of course, we need to understand what that's talking about. I mean, Jesus was crucified on a cross and the historical context, what this was in the Roman Empire in the first century, and the Roman Empire was really, really, really good at executing people. And so they would execute criminals, is one of the ways they would do this, is with a, a wooden cross, right? Jesus wasn't the only person crucified on a cross, right? So, and one of the reasons why they did this is because it was such an incredible way of demonstrating how completely in control they were. This is saying, if anyone come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. What you've got to understand is that what the Romans would do, and this, of course, this happened for Jesus, where they would force the criminals to carry the cross, to carry their own instrument of execution. Think about that. You're going to carry the, the very thing that is going to kill you, and they show that, that publicly you would be seen carrying your own instrument of execution, and the Romans did this as a way of saying, this is how in control we are, this is how much we are, you are submitting to our authority. So much so that not only are we going to kill you, but we are going to make you carry the very instrument that's going to kill you. It is a complete and total submission. And Jesus is saying that once you come to know me and know the gospel, then this is what you will do. You will surrender to me. To the same degree that I surrendered to the Romans, that I will surrender to the Romans, as he's saying in this passage. It's a complete surrender. You see, as God begins to renew us, the new you, you become a person who is completely surrendered to God. So I'm just going to ask you a question because this just affects things. And I'm, I got to keep it general because if I just tell you, well, do this, do this, do this, do this, that's too easy. That's too simple. What does it mean to surrender? Well, do X, Y, and Z. Okay, check, check, check. It's much deeper than that. So I'm just going to throw some things out there and just ask you this. Have you surrendered your money to Jesus? Have you surrendered it? Do you, do you, do you think about, about everything that you have? When I say have you surrendered your money, what I'm really saying is, Have you surrendered all the things in life that you long and love and need? Have you surrendered that all to Jesus? Because that's what you spend your money on, right? Money isn't really a thing. It doesn't really exist. It's this kind of fictional thing we've come up with. It's what's underneath it. It's all those things that you love and all those things that you long to have. Have you surrendered all of that to Jesus? And said, there is nothing I would not give up for you. 
Because this is the new you. This is a life that is being renewed and restored has this new priority. A new identity, a new priority, and finally a new direction. Again, verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, what's really interesting about him saying this, and if I'm right, I, I meant to look this up, I believe this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that he says this. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. Whether it is or it isn't, what's really remarkable is, is the context in which he says this, okay? So he's talking about, okay, I'm going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then I'm going to be killed. Okay, now what has happened right before that? Peter has just said, you're the king. Well, that's weird. The timing's a little bit odd here. I mean, right now, we, we, we're, no, you're the, you're the king. You're not just some prophet. You're not just John the Baptist coming back. You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're the one through whom God's kingdom is going to come. You're the one to all glory and power comes. Yeah, that's who you are, Jesus. What are you going to do with that, Jesus? Yeah, I'm going to go die. You see, Jesus is introducing us to a new direction, and and here's what it is. There is the world's direction, and then there is God's direction. The world's direction is to climb up. God's direction is to go down. The world's direction is to lord power and authority over others. God's direction is to relinquish that. And the paradox of the Christian faith is that God renews and restores all things, not through the wielding of power, but through the relinquishing of it. And so he calls us to this, he calls us to this new direction. Of course, Peter rebukes him, and this is what happens. Peter ends up rebuking him, and What's interesting about that is, is Jesus rebukes him, and, and of course he's going to rebuke him because that's what the world does. The world rebukes this concept because the world can't handle it. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, Christianity historically just continues to do what Peter does. We rebuke that. We don't like this. That Wait a minute. You want us to relinquish power? That doesn't make any sense. So the the first couple hundred years of Christianity, they weren't in power, they weren't in power, they weren't in power, and, and they were the most authentic. Christianity was at its most authentic in those first couple hundred years of Christianity when they were not in power. And then when Constantine comes along and they start to get power is, is when the Christianity started to dissolve in terms of its genuine authenticity. Christianity is never its most authentic when it is in power. And this is really important for us as Christians living today We cannot think that the kingdom of God is going to come primarily through power. It's dangerous when Christianity finds itself in a place of power because it loses its integrity over and over again. This is true in the grander scale, and then it's also true for us as individuals. And this is the point here is that this new direction is down, 
not up. It's about serving, not lording over others. Now, here's what we need to understand if we go this route. If you go this route of relinquishing, because what we're talking about here is giving up what you want. It's consistently giving up you want. What Jesus is getting at here is that life is not found through getting what you want. You see, we just go for what we want. Well, I want this, I want this, I want this. And he's actually saying you surrender that as you begin to surrender that and you say, no, it's not what I want, it's what God wants. And it's what's going to help others. When you start to go that route, okay, that's the direction that we're talking about going down, becoming a servant. Here's the problem with this. It will never work. It will never work if your identity isn't in Christ. Right, going back, right? It's renewing your identity, it's renewing your priority, and it's renewing your direction. This is what happens, this new life that we're talking about. And so we're talking about this new direction of becoming a servant and of giving of yourself for others. But if your identity isn't in Christ, this will never work. You know why? Because you will always feel unappreciated. You will always feel unappreciated. If you give and you serve and you serve and you give and you give and you serve and your identity is not in Christ, you will always feel unappreciated. Whether it's serving in the church, whether it's serving in your marriage, whether it's serving in the workplace, whether it's serving your children, if your identity is not in Christ, you will always feel unappreciated. In fact, When you feel, when I feel unappreciated, and we all do this, it is an indication that we're not finding our identity in Christ. We're seeking the praise and the approval of others. Friends, Jesus did not just come here to give you some good advice. Jesus came here to completely change your life. He came here to give you a new you. So how many Americans does it take to change a light bulb? One to hold the light bulb and a hundred to spin the room. Because you see, I think our attitude is that the way to fix the problem is out there. The way to fix the problem is I've got to change everything around me. That in order to find life, what I need to change are my circumstances around me. But if you try to change the circumstances, that's like trying to spin the room when what really needs to be turned, what needs to be changed, is the light bulb itself. We never think the problem is with us. We always think it's with with everything around us. The heart of the Christian faith is the God who loves you more than you can possibly imagine has come to change you, to give you a new identity, a new priority and a new direction. We now come to our time of communion. The ushers, if you can begin to get ready. Bless you.
And communion is an opportunity for us to respond. It's an opportunity for us to be renewed and to be restored. It's an opportunity for us to turn. It's an opportunity for us to turn from all of the ways in which we've been seeking our worth and our value somewhere else, finding our identity somewhere else, and to come before the cross and to see the love of God that he loves you no matter what you have done. It's an opportunity to say, I'm going to surrender as Christ surrendered, that as I take the elements, the, the, the cup, the bread and the cup, that, which represent the body and his blood, it's a time for me to say, as he died for me, now I die. Now I surrender myself to him. It's an opportunity for me to say, as he served, now I will serve. Ushers, will you please come forward? Please bow your heads with me. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we confess in our silliness the ways in which we have turned from you, in ways that dishonor you and ultimately hurt ourselves. God, I pray that once again we would turn to you. God, I pray that we would see in the bread and the cup the love that you have for us and that you offer us everything that we need. May we look to you and to you alone for life. May we find in the cup complete forgiveness for the ways in which we've looked to other things for our identity and then the ways in which that plays out in our actions. God, I pray that in this place we would be forgiven and free. God, I pray maybe for some of us here for the first time, God, we might see our need for you, might confess our need for you, and profess our faith in you. God, I pray for some of us who perhaps have followed you for many years that this might be a time in which we recommit ourselves to you. Pray this in Jesus' name.